Good evening, everyone. The DEI Committee of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy, a component of APTA, is bringing you this interview with our committee members to discuss and reflect on diversity, equality, and inclusion experiences within our profession and continuum of care. Tonight, I will have each committee member answer a question or two as it relates to this topic. But first, I would like to allow each committee member to introduce themselves, starting with our chair, Bobby. Hello, everyone. My name is Robert Phillips, but I go by Bobby. I have been a physical therapist for 14 years here in Akron, Ohio, and a neurophysical therapist since 2016. I am a full-time educator as well, and I chair the DEI committee. Next, we will have Hina. Hello, everybody. My name is Hina Garg, and I practice in the state of Utah. And I'm also a professor at Rocky Mountain University of Health Professions, um, working in a community rehabilitation clinic that serves a uh, majority Spanish, uh, Hispanic population. I'm very proud of that. I have multiple specialties. Um, I've been in the field of neurological clinical practice for the last 13 years. And uh, I have been an, an NCS for the last uh, five years or so. Um, the reason that I serve on the DEI committee is because of the minority experiences that I've had and the challenges that I've faced myself as a as a woman, as a young clinician of color, and also um, an immigrant. So very happy to bring that to the table. Thank you. And next we have Deja. Hi, my name is Deja Crippen. I graduated last year from St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I am currently an outpatient travel physical therapist in Delaware with primary experience now treating vestibular and neurologic disorders. Um, I'm very happy to be the newest member on the AMPT's DEI committee alongside of so many experienced clinicians and professors who are just as passionate about promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion as I am. Thank you. And my name is Janine Vinson. I'm a neurologic physical therapist in Dallas, Texas. I practice at UT Southwestern. I've practiced for about 13 years and I've been board certified in neurology since 2017. I have a special interest in this committee considering that I'm a minority woman in this field. And I was one of the four individuals that were uh, minorities in my graduating class. And I was the only African-American lady in my DPT class. I have great, you know, passion about this, you know, this diversity, equality, and inclusion just because of the things that I've seen in the clinic, specifically with the neurologic population. I look forward to doing work that will enhance the task force for the challenges that minorities face, um, as well as anyone that does not look like the general population. Next, I will have Tim to speak as to why this committee was formed. Hello, my name is Tim Nordahl, and I am the uh, Director of Communications for the Academy of Neurologic PT. 
Um, so on the board of directors, um, over the summer of 2020, like many organizations, we realized, um, you know, how far we had to go in terms of promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it seemed like the APTA was starting to make some efforts. Some state chapters um, were starting to uh, form committees for DE&I. And some of our SIGs and committees had started to do some work for this. So what we decided to do was over the course of uh, 2020 into 2021, recruit some of our individuals, uh, some members from across the organization who are interested in working in this field so that we could have one centralized committee that's helping to coordinate with the APTA and to form our own workforces, uh, identify what sort of needs we have that will promote DE&I within the neurologic physical therapy field, and also to see um, what our patients need in order to make sure that we're maximizing outcomes for all of our patients. Um, so that was sort of the spirit with which the committee was formed back in 2021. Uh, it's been a pleasure working with Janine and Bobby and Hina and Deja and, and all of our committee members and everyone who's committed uh, contributed to the committee so far. I'm looking forward to our first podcast. Thank you so much for that, Tim. Next, I'll have each committee member share experiences on certain questions that they are asked. I'll start with Bobby. Bobby, can you please share your DEI journey with us? Yes, Janine, thank you for the question. Um, so my journey started off with the ANPT because I received an email of the interest in participating with the committee. And um, at that time, we were just a task force. And so when I reflected upon why I would like to join the task force and become a member of the task force, it occurred to me that I have several DEI experiences within my everyday life. And so first I identify as an LGBTQ plus member. Um, my husband and I have adopted two wonderful children and both of our children are ethnically diverse uh, from the African-American community. And so we have those paths that intersect and cross in our daily lives. Um, my previous work didn't have much to do with DEI or DEI-related topics, and it was actually kind of frowned upon and discouraged within the institution. And so when I was accepted a position at this, my current institution at Franklin Pierce University, we were really looking at how to diversify the university, diversify the profession, and move things forward. And I thought that the task force would be a wonderful experience to serve on to that end. Um, so the lens that I kind of take when I look at DEI and DEI related topics and activities and events is always through one, how can we include and have participation from all members of the community? So our patients, um, our faculty, our students, our clinicians, how can we all work together? And my lens always tends to revolve around uh, the LGBTQ plus community. How can we include the LGBTQ plus community, which comes from all aspects of society? And so really our work here with the committee has 
in all aspects of DEI, but that's the lens that I bring to the to the conversation. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Deja, being the newest therapist on this committee, can you share with us the challenges in the clinic related to DEI? Did you feel prepared for your transition from didactic work to your field work as a treating therapist considering these potential challenges? Yes. So when discussing challenges in the clinic, I can break this up into two different viewpoints, one being the relationship between the, the clinician and the patient, and two, the interaction between the individual coworkers and or superiors. I also found it necessary to reach out to my fellow colleagues to gather insight on this topic beyond my own. So as new therapist, referring to the relationship between the patient and the clinician, language barriers and lack of health literacy have become evident. For example, in our clinics, patients have been observed arriving post-operative without adequate knowledge of the procedures they had undergone. These patients are typically devoid of any pertinent information or necessary precautions. Patients also frequently exhibit a lack of comprehension when interacting with their medical professional. This may be due to a language barrier or that they just are not familiar with medical terminology. And as a Black young female clinician treating patients, one of the greatest challenges that I face and others have expressed this as well, is gaining respect from patients, especially early on. So like during an initial evaluation or when sharing patients with other therapists in the clinic. And I do feel like we as minorities have to prove our capability of providing great care and build a significant amount of rapport to develop trust. My colleague also stated that it can be a challenge to get patients to understand that we are credentialed doctors of physical therapy and we are qualified. Now, as far as the work environment and relationship between coworkers, I feel that I had to become comfortable with developing my own voice and standing my own ground. I'm conscious of when I need to seek guidance as a new practicing clinician. However, there were times where I was belittled or provided with guidance that was not necessary, which again goes back to the whole proving our capability. And then when asked the question about, did I feel prepared or do we feel prepared to transition from didactic work to clinicals to being treating therapists, many of us feel like we were not 100% prepared for these challenges with didactic work alone. We learned a little bit about diversity, equity, and inclusion in ethics class, and the curriculum may have incorporated minority characteristics or traits into case studies. However, it was the clinical exposure, depending on where you ended up and actually practicing as clinicians that allowed us to better handle these challenges. And my very first clinical was on the Navajo Indian Reservation, and I learned so much about their culture, and I had to adjust my delivery of treatment. So learning about somebody's background and meeting them exactly where they are can definitely play a role in optimizing their health outcomes. Love it. Thank you so much. I agree with all of those statements. You guys are providing such great insight. Next, we'll have Hina. Hina, can you please share a case study that reflects DE, a DEI experience and how you navigated the process? 
Of course. And uh, I will definitely uh, like to agree with what my previous speaker, Deja, mentioned on the lack of clear information and in a preferred manner that should be provided to individuals from a different sociocultural background. Because when it's not done in that manner, um, I think it leads to isolation and marginalization um, of individuals from that community or from that population. Um, in that example that Deja was giving was language problems or linguistic competency. Um, so I, I think I have a great example um, uh, where I had a Hispanic client with multiple sclerosis that I treated uh, within the MS Physical Therapy and Wellness Center that I direct. It is a center that is the part of um, Rocky Mountain University of Health Professions Community Rehabilitation Clinic. Um, and, you know, just a one, one sentence about this clinic. Um, it's um, meant to serve underinsured, uninsured, and indigenous populations uh, within the state of Utah. So we receive a lot of the referrals are for individuals who lack the financial means to get good quality care. Um, so having that mission um, and that sense of service, the university has partnered um, and created this clinic that serves individuals who are in financial need and need good quality care. So I'm very proud to be associated uh, with that clinic because um, that's how we're able to serve a great amount of um, uh, serve the, the neurological needs of our population because I'm, I'm able to provide those services um, through that MS center. Um, the CRC, which is a, a short form for that clinic, is um, also a means where we are able to provide interpretive services. And uh, I was able to rely on those services to serve this Hispanic client. Now, at that point, and this is several years ago, uh, the Hispanic client that when they came to me, at that point, I hadn't had a Hispanic client who was diagnosed with MS. Um, and uh, I had to use these interpretation services um, to help transform most of my patient intake forms, as well as my um, standardized survey forms and some outcome measure um, instructions, as well as forms that were not very easy to do. Let me let me explain that a little bit. I not only used the interpretation services, but I also sat down with the with a couple other people who were more linguistically capable of translating. Uh, the information um, and medically uh, transforming and interpreting it and, and making it in a concise manner um, and useful manner uh, to create these surveys. Because you, it's not only about the native speaker understanding that uh, sentence that's being spoken, but it's also, is it medically correct? Is it um, accurate? Is it um, is is it uh, applicable to all speakers of that language? So I think just that cultural linguistic context, um, in addition to just, you know, how the language is broken down. So I think I had to really think out, out of the box, because at that point, I didn't have um, a client with Hispanic uh, background and completely um, Spanish speaking. So they didn't speak English at all. Um, I had to transform my patient intake paperwork, my standard assessments, um, and would have my uh, inter interpreter with me um, trying to perform the assessments and ensure that the surveys were filled out correctly and interpreted correctly by me. 
um, and uh, answered questions by the speaker so that we could transform those surveys um, for future use. And we have used those surveys uh, since for other patients. Um, and really in that situation, not only the surveys, but, but also the interpretation and sharing of that information was required to this person because typically individuals from this background um, are not considered as high risk and um, for developing multiple sclerosis. So, you know, that is why everything was in English uh, for me. And uh, for them, this information that I could share with them was missing. They didn't know a lot about the condition. Nobody had taken the time to explain it to them. And uh, all the test scores or the self-reported assessments that I was conducting with them, they were very keen on understanding why they were feeling so fatigued, why they were their mobility was affected. Uh, they still had to work um, pretty extensively um, and had young kids. And uh, on top of that, they had this new onset, this diagnosis of MS. And uh, there was a big language barrier between different providers that they were seeing, um, and also a cultural um, uh, barrier too, because I think they needed a, a different form of a plan of care where uh, the childcare need, the provider of the family, uh, that the woman was playing a role. So this is a client who was a woman. And uh, so she had to play multiple roles and still manage her multiple sclerosis uh, with uh, symptoms, significant symptoms such as fatigue and poor mobility and uh, new medications that were wiping her out. So I think I learned in that process where I could uh, learn the needs of this population, transform my paperwork, and uh, really sit down to explain what we were doing um, for patients with MS at our center and how does it uh, relate to her, how does it apply to her, create a different plan of care. Um, in my center for, the, for MS, generally once the person sits down with the physical therapist, uh, we go over um, the design of plan of care and following through and progression of the exercises to meet their goals. After that, there is a possibility for the person to participate in supervised and group-based wellness. The challenge there was that all other participants at that point were um, primarily English speaking. For this woman, she never really felt part of the group. So see how throughout the story, I feel like um, she was definitely isolated and marginalized and she could not continue uh, to participate in the wellness program based on many factors, including language, um, the child care was a problem, and then also the hours that we could offer were a problem for her. Um, so we had to adapt a different model where I could um, check in with her at different time points. So the way we navigated that, as you, as you see in this example, is that we had to be very flexible in uh, transforming uh, steps to meet her needs uh, in that situation. That's awesome, Hina. And I'm pretty sure by your, you know, extensive efforts to make her feel like she, you know, was inclusive of the group and her symptoms were heard. I'm pretty sure that her plan of cure success was reflective of that. I thank you for that example. Of course. Janine, I'm going to ask you a question now. Um, based on 
this inaugural committee, this is our first year as a committee, and your personal experiences and the information that was shared tonight, what do you see that could be beneficial for our profession and more specifically the neurologic population to help improve DEI as we move forward? Thank you, Bobby. Yes, so I'll, I'll start with a, a personal experience. As I spoke about earlier, I am an uh, African-American woman and actually uh, was discouraged um, to receive my doctorate in physical therapy. You know, even though I had always been a, a strong student, um, I had a professor um, that actually told me, you know, why don't you do teaching or why don't you, you know, be a nurse? And I guess that's more reflective of uh, my community. And, you know, I did not let that discourage me. And, and so, you know, I feel very strong in my abilities, but what if there were a student that was easily persuaded and someone told them that, that could, you know, greatly discourage them in the future. And so from that point on, you know, I made it my mission to, you know, uh, advocate for individuals that look like me, um, for individuals that think that they could not potentially attain a degree, um, a doctoral degree. And so once I went to PT school and I saw that neurologic physical therapy was ever changing, I love it because <laughs> there are great challenges. Is uh, There's no complacency with uh, neuro and I love that. Um, but what I saw was even with individuals that had their NCS, they didn't look like me. So who do I talk to? How do I know the pathway to be successful? Um, and I did the research and did everything that I needed to do to sit for my exam. And, you know, I, again, I was like, you know, I got to make sure that I mentor to individuals that look like me because, yes, they may know that they can achieve getting their, their doctorate in physical therapy, but maybe they're so focused on sports, right? You know, African-Americans with playing sports, I can only do sports med or uh, ortho, but, you know, there are so many different other um, opportunities for educational growth within our profession. And so taking it a step further, uh, my patient base right now, um, as Hina spoke about, you know, I have a lot of patients that are minorities, just not African-Americans, but, you know, minorities in general, and they're affected by stroke or by spinal cord or um, any type of brain or spinal cord injury. And then their understanding of their condition uh, may not be the same as their counterparts. And so, you know, I feel like sometimes they they fall through the cracks when they don't have someone advocating for them. And so, you know, thinking about the neurologic population um, more specifically is just making sure, like Hina said, we have the forums that um is translated, you know, for our Hispanic community, uh, for community-based projects, uh, for those individuals that live on in certain zip codes. You know, it's been researched that there are certain zip codes where, you know, healthcare is 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 not easy to be accessed, and so it is our opportunity as therapists. Um, to give them that and and to treat them as an individual and ensure that their care is. Um, uh, greatly taken seriously, uh, advocate for any resources that they may need that their insurance that, that does not provide, um, and, and just making sure that we're just inclusive of all individuals. So thank you, Bobby, for asking that question. But I think that we continue to do the work so that we can decrease those, those systemic disparities that we see within certain communities. Wonderful, wonderful answer. 
I think what we're all looking for is just to to make society a better place for everyone. Yes, I agree. I agree. And being inclusive of everyone, regardless of uh, race or creed or background or where they live, you know, everyone deserves a fair chance. Exactly. Is, is there anyone else that would like to share anything as it relates to this topic or in areas of improvements, what you would like to see in the future? I, I definitely feel that the support and the mentorship that you stated is very important, especially for new um, practicing therapists now and even students and being told that you can do something is is a, a big motivator, I feel like, for students. And then if you tell them that they can't and they won't succeed in something, then I do feel like that can also play a role in how successful they end up being or the direction they want to take. Um, so I know that I've told a lot of my friends who didn't make it this far or students who were in my program with me as well. And they were told that they couldn't or they should try a different profession. So I told them that I will keep going for them when they didn't have the strength to, um, even though I feel like if they were motivated in a different way, things could have been different. So I do agree with that. Yeah, I was- Thank you. I think that, that those are very strong statements from both Deja, Deja and Janine uh, about helping individuals, about really looking at how everything's intertwined with intersectionality. And I would like to also add the clinic side of things. I think as physical therapists, as we continue to grow in our knowledge of DEI and our DEI efforts, we are primely positioned to be examples for the rest of the medical community. Um, I know I've had several encounters with our nursing staff in the inpatient rehab facility that I also work in and just helping them to understand what this person might be going through or the perspectives that this individual might be facing um, really, really is a game changer when you work with that, that team on a day-to-day -day basis. So I think as physical therapists, we're, we're in a great position to help bring DEI forward throughout the, the medical community. And I, I would agree. even like to add to that. I, I agree. And I've been meaning to say, I think don't restrict, you know, mentorship to new clinicians. I think mentorship belongs to every denomination, every person, really for my patients, I'm a coach, you know, like some of these patients really need somebody to sit down and listen to their complaints or um, grievances, or they have never had a good touch point with a provider. Um, so just like what Bobby was saying, just listening and bringing in all the experiences that I have. I come in from a different country. I understand a different language. So uh, multiple now. And I, I think just trying to relate to the person in front of you um, and it doesn't just restrict itself to the clinic. Um, you know, even as a new academic, um, or even a mid-career academic uh, individual. So people need mentorship and coaching at all levels. And just, you know, like going back to, I've had people tell me all things, all kinds of things where um, you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that. You should not even think of going there or here. And I think we really have to be very cognizant of um, like what you were saying, Deja and Janine. I think what you were saying was, you know, just the right set of motivation. We also need to recognize that, you know, as an individual, we could lack confidence, but we need to really 
think about what is our purpose and uh, what voices do we want to hear and keep in mind as we progress and just bring that to the table for our patients, for our community, for our colleagues, as an academic, as a clinician, as a mentor. I think just recognizing that everybody can can use some good mentorship and and also keep in mind what we want and, and how do we want to contribute as a mentor. Wonderful, wonderful, Hina. Thank you so much. Well, I would like to thank everyone for listening to this interview brought to you by the DEI committee. For, for, for more information on this committee in ANPT, visit www.neuropt.org. Thank you.